This is episode six of the Filmmaking the Hard Way podcast. I am Josh Folan, and as is always the case, I am having a coffee today, or coffees in this case actually, with a couple talented filmmakers that work in the low to micro budget filmmaking space. Today I'm speaking to Patrick James Lynch and Rob Bradford, who are the figureheads on a documentary uh, called Bombardier Blood that they were so kind to share with me pre-release uh, the other day. And I watched last night, and this is my conversation with them about that film. Okay, I am here with... Rob Bradford. And Patrick James Lynch. And these gentlemen uh, are in the, I guess, latter stages of producing, directing uh, a documentary film that they were kind enough to share with me pre-release. I watched it last night. Fucking great work, guys. I cried a bunch. That doesn't say necessarily that I cry. In my old age, I cry like seven times, regardless of what I'm watching. I don't know what that's about. Getting soft. I understand. uh, Yeah, very good. Um, Thanks. Okay, so the first thing I like to ask is, and I've never done this with two, so forgive me if some of these questions were fucking (laughs) get a little weird. But uh, Let's get weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leaning Uh, in. The first dollar you earned in the entertainment industry, how did you earn it, and how did you score the gig? And I guess feel free, whichever one of you want to take the lead on that. The first dollar. I'm, I know what mine is. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, it was, I had just <clears throat> graduated from high school and I was doing a dinner theater in um, <laughs> Forest, Virginia. And it was like a whodunit. The show was Who Wants to Kill a Millionaire? And um, it was fraught with all sorts of disaster, that show. I mean, I had a guy walk out in the middle of a show who was an actor one time in the middle of a show and we had to figure out how to like just deal with an actor who wasn't there anymore but that we earned $25 a night plus tips so that was my first paid gig that's, that's more, that's, that's <laughs> more lucrative how many, how many unpaid acting gigs have you done prior to that I was going to say that's, if that's your first gig ever that, um, that's a pretty good paid first well, gig yeah. <laughs> I, did, I did a bunch of I, did, I mean I did a bunch of stuff um, you know in high school but, yeah, okay. and then I did plenty of more stuff after that was unpaid or lesser <laughs> paid than that for sure yeah, I'm trying to remember. The first one that I remember was like six or seven months after school. I was cast in the Actor Theater of Louisville. Does um, was it the Humana New Play Festival? And I was cast as a character in that, which got me my equity card, and was a decent contract um, to play a character who was wearing football pads and a football helmet because he had some kind of undiagnosed disorder and he would just fly into a rage and run into walls. So that was my first gig. Uh, it's great for the hemophiliac actor. <laughs> um, but it was a very cool opportunity. But I can't remember... I, I, I must have gotten paid to do something before that, but I can't remember what it was. So that's that's what comes to mind. Yeah. I was going to say, dude, that's, not, that's a terrible story in that it's like a completely uber legit job yeah 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 i've never like processed that but maybe that's true maybe, i feel like maybe it had like a commercial thing or some like forgettable one day shoot prior to that but like that was pretty quick you've just well, been working to get back to that first gig status yeah, <laughs> pretty <laughs> much yeah. fucking patrick in your fucking pedestal starting point it's all downhill from there it's all downhill Place called All Hail Hurricane Gordo, by the way. Shout out to All Hail Hurricane Gordo and Carly Mensch. <laughs> okay, so on to the project. Uh, well, the first question I actually want to ask you, which is not normally my first question, but how high up in the mountain on the mountain did you fucking maniacs go? <laughs> That's a Rob question. That's a yeah. I, so I was at base camp. Um, I wasn't permitted to go on the mountain itself, although I did walk up and touch it. 
just for the picture. <laughs> uh, I, but honestly, I'm, I was like really good at that level. I did go on day hikes above uh, base camp. So base camp was about 17,600 feet. Um, and then, you know, th- that base camp is actually surrounded by mountains. There's tons. There's, I mean, a dozen or so right there. And not all of them are Mount Everest. You can go on ones that are, you know, just like a little day hike uh, that, that I did a lot. Um, yes, so you're permitted just to step foot on like... But anything. on Everest itself, yeah, absolutely. It's an $11,000 permit with the Nepali government plus lots of other stuff. So did not have that money um, mm-hmm. and did not really have that interest because the first couple steps, the first couple miles are the most deadly and I, was, I just wanted to touch it and get out of there. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I was sitting there watching like, I can't believe these motherfuckers did this to make a movie. <laughs> well, what yeah. is amazing is that, you know, with where technology is now, with just uh, some GoPros, really, and between our climber, Chris, his Sherpa, Tashi, and his guide, Ryan Waters, who did have some production experience, um, everything that you see north of base camp is from one of those three individuals whose primary job is climbing the mountain, you know, a large portion of which is called the death zone because your body literally starts to consume itself. So just with a few GoPros to be able to like adequately get those guys um, set up to record what was ultimately the footage we had of, you know, Chris climbing Mount Everest for the documentary, it's pretty mind blowing. It's something that wouldn't have been available even 10 years ago. Yeah. So you were smart enough to not even go over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, you know, a lot of this project for me in one way or another has been learning to let go of control. Um, and part of it was I, we could only have one person at base camp just budgetarily and in terms of like our total business and, and bandwidth. And it made far more sense for that person to be robbed than me for a host of reasons. And then on top of that, um, I, kind of even want to at least travel to base camp on that trek. It's like a 10-day trek from Lukla where you fly into uh, to base camp itself. Um, but I was getting married at the same time <laughs> that all this was going on, um, and it was a destination wedding. And so it was just like, okay, I got to like let go of uh, once we leave Kathmandu, my production time in Nepal is done, um, which was a learning experience. And then, you know, you... You work with people you trust and you empower them to do their best work and release into that as much as you can. Um, so I was never really worried about it, but uh, it was definitely a learning experience. I didn't know you wanted to come. I would have used it. <laughs> <laughs> I scared a bunch of shit. I love the idea of you guys exploring new ideas and getting closer here in the, in the yeah. context of, of talking to me for this if podcast. That, if I knew that was something I could have flexed a little on, I would have, I would have definitely pushed that. <laughs> Especially in retrospect. Okay, yeah. Back so backing up a little bit, uh, I had that, that was the first thing I needed to know. Uh, but backing up a little bit, your elevator pitch of the project, and again, normally this is with one person, and I like the idea. Yeah, I thought about this a little bit. I think I'd like to hear yours first, being the creative figurehead, and then producer boy should have like a really padded, a, a down pat one. So I would like to hear your. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. The, the the short story was it was. A documentary following um, the historic mission of a mountaineer and activist with hemophilia attempting to become the first person to climb the seven summits, the highest mountain on each continent, which includes Mount Everest, and doing so not only to profile what is possible with hemophilia, but also to shine a spotlight on what's not possible if you don't have access to the life-sustaining medication that, unfortunately, 75% of the world does not have access to, including those who live in Nepal, the home country of Everest. 
So that was the kind of elevator pitch, 10,000 foot view of what we were hoping to accomplish with what we often talk about as an adventure dock and a mountain dock, and it is, but there's this really important uh, heart and mission that the film has that was, uh, there would be no film if that was not a part of it. That, that was what separated this and made it worth doing. Pretty polished, man. I don't think you can do better than that, can you? I can't. <laughs> I would just, no, I, I, I absolutely can't. I, I would just, I would say, like the things that stuck out to me so interestingly when shooting this and when you know, kind of watching this go along the line is, is how frustrating it is that um, there is such a drastic difference in care, specifically in hemophilia, which is easy to point at, but in so many other places too, between what we can have here in America and what can allow people with bleeding disorders here in America to live full, seemingly normal lives, and what in um, 75% of the world has access to means you're probably, you're 50% likely to die before age 10. Uh, And, you know, living into adult life is severely difficult, and it takes ironically, a guy climbing to the top of a mountain to be able to shine a spotlight on that, you know? That's what it takes for people to kind of turn their heads and pay attention to it, and so that's, you know, that's what we did. Absolutely. Okay, what uh, what were, are your roles on it? And I mean, I know, you know, it's easy to look up. You're the director, you're the producer, but especially, I mean, just look at the credits, and every independent project I find... You, get your hands at everything. So I want to know, what I'm really asking here is not just your main title. I'm asking for what is every job title that you did at some point throughout the process? Production. Uh, actually, just in general. Even if, uh, you know. I think the one I'm most proud of is additional camera work by for <laughs> my holding my iPhone in an airport and bringing a GoPro without audio equipment to a party in Colorado. There's two brief moments in the film one of which is I laugh at because I'm six foot two, Chris is shorter than that, and uh, I'm not a camera operator. So I'm filming him talking with his uncle at this party, and I'm just towering over the two of them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, oh, what happened to this part of the film? Uh, yeah, that was the uh, inexperienced guy uh, towering over people. So that's the one that's I have. That's, that's adding your, your vision as a director. Though, something right? that's adding <laughs> something, that's for sure. But, um, so yeah, the, the formal titles are director, writer, producer, which I learned what those mean from doing this. I had never been the director, writer, or producer on a feature documentary before this. Um, and I guess, I mean, those three pretty well capture in one way or another my responsibilities. Those are three expansive titles. I guess one thing that maybe sets this project apart is um, the relationship that we had to our our subject, Chris, Um, the relationship that we developed to the Nepal Hemophilia Society who supported us and helped us secure permits to certain things that we needed and were just like a meaningful partner in the process, the relationship we had to Save One Life, the charity that is depicted in the film that Chris is the executive director of, and the relationship we had to Octopharma, who underwrote Chris's climbs and the financing for the documentary. Um, there's a fair amount of relationship and dynamic management um, across a multi-year process of creating a documentary and along the way finding the moments to make sure we were satisfying uh, expectations of our funder, of our partners, to keep a, a presence going for this thing um, that was funded starting at the end of 2016, even though it's you know 2019 and the film's not finished yet. We know as filmmakers that's normal. But when uh, securing finances from a a company that's used to you give money and you see the impact of that, 
uh, partnering with organizations and asking them to be very vulnerable with us and then having nothing to show for it for quite some time. There's a decent amount of just relationship management that, you know, is kind of an off the page skill set that as a producer, I think is really important to have. Um, say that's kind of, that's a, a very almost stock responsibility of producers. Yes. Managing the expectations of everyone. <laughs> of everyone. On each side of yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess, man, I have a lot of, um, <laughs> I had a lot of things I did that are not in the I mean, just in the answer of that, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, so whereas Patrick was certainly a producer on that front of it, um, my producer credit comes in the in the uh, line item management of all the different things, the the adding and deleting of of things that you would want but couldn't have. Because um, even though yes, a, a pharmaceutical company did underwrite this, as he was mentioning, we didn't have uh, I don't know what kind of pharma money that people might be dreaming of, but we didn't have that. I would still <laughs> consider this to be a low budget documentary, especially considering that we were um, filming this in Nepal, I, Everest Base Camp, for so long. So. Um, I had a lot of um, putting my wants onto a list and my needs onto a list uh, that I would need while up there and then striking those things off or figuring out different creative ways to get those things. Um, at, while I was at base camp, I was filming. I was DIT. I was the sound guy. I was the uh, coming up with the questions. I was um, trying to manage uh, like everything that was happening um, on the mountain and making sure they were filming it correctly, which... God, they weren't. Chris, one time, uh, one of the rotations, because there's only three rotations you do, his team did two acclimatization rotations up the mountain, and then they did the final rotation where they summited. And um, the first rotation, he had come back with just time-lapse footage by accident instead of recording it. He had, so he's like, like worried about surviving, and you're like right. bitching at him about cinematography. I, 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 did, <laughs> Correct. I did realize, I did realize right. the irony there, but I was like, if you survive, nobody cares if you come back with no footage. Um <laughs> Actually, a lot of people care if you don't come There's back. Managing, you know, like, <laughs> There's managing expectations yeah. right there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, it, uh, pretty much every job that that involves. And, uh, and you know, make, oh, God, the AC jobs when it came to fixing all the gear that was breaking while I was up there. All that kind of stuff, too. <laughs> Hashtag producer. Yeah. I just, got, I just got really tired thinking about all that. Thanks. <laughs> my, my pleasure. I'm here to make you fucking... Remember all the bad stuff. That's what people want to hear about. <laughs> uh, okay, so we just talked about a little bit of it here, but um, how much time was spent fundraising? What were the sources, which you, again, kind of brushed over a little bit, maybe just getting very specific, and the percentage of those sources? Of course, no dollar amounts, but just the percentages uh, that, um, I guess, to, you know, I'm sure it's still a little bit of a rolling thing, too, not being in on screens for the public to see yet, but yeah. um, as much as you can. Yeah, so the, the process of fundraising was fortunately relatively quick. We identified that Wolfgang McGare, who's the uh, founder and chairman of Octopharma, would be someone worth connecting with for a few reasons. He's one of the largest sponsors of... So I mentioned Save One Life before. They're featured in the film. It's a charity that supplies uh, medicine as well as other forms of aid to families affected by hemophilia in 13 developing countries. And that includes sponsorships, financial sponsorships of children with hemophilia. Only in developing countries or do they operate in the U.S. too? Only in developing countries. There are, there are patient-focused organizations that are both regionally and nationally operating within the U.S. and Europe and other developed parts of um, the globe. And there's two organizations whose focus is on 
um, at least in part, developing parts of the globe. And Save Up One Life is only focused on that. Um, so he's one of the largest sponsors of children through their sponsorship program. And his company, Octopharma, is one of the largest corporate donors to their mission. Um, Octopharma is also a privately held biotech company, which is quite rare. The other biotech companies that operate in the hemophilia space and could potentially have some kind of marketing commercial interest in this film, they are th those are much larger companies, publicly traded companies. It's not as simple as, you know, if we can get a yes from the CEO, right. this thing could happen. Through, yeah. um, and since there was that kind of connection to the organization and their mission, we thought Wolfgang might, might be the right guy. So he was the first person we went to um, through his his uh, second in command, Fleming Nielsen, who appears briefly in the film. And this, you had the story before this was occurring, right? You had you you were aware of Chris and his desire to to do these seven or yeah. Where that, did that fall? That's a good that's a good point. So Chris approached me after he had done five of the seven and asked. We had met once briefly, and we knew of each other because the hemophilia world. I have hemophilia, like Chris does. It's a small world. Um, so at a, at a patient meeting, he was like, Hey, can we sit down and get a coffee? I want to talk to you about something. And you know, that elevator pitch that I laid out for you, I'd like to take credit for it, but it was really Chris's idea. Um, you know, he had, he knew that, um, Everest was a mountain people knew about, and he was trying to fundraise and raise awareness for hemophilia in developing countries. So true. I've never heard of any of the other six. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, if you're not in the world, like you, <laughs> and you no just, desire to climb any of them. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that's you, you and me both. Um, but he, he, uh, he laid out this vision and, you know, quite, I thought intelligently recognized that with Everest, if we could do some kind of content capture around that, we might be able to raise much more awareness and, and more funds for Save One Life. And I thought there was great wisdom in that. And then the story of like, what isn't, is not possible when you have hemophilia, depending on your access to care, you got the tallest mountain in the world and one of the poorest countries in the world with the least amount of access possible. Like the disparity from a storytelling perspective, super compelling. So um, that would have been in like early 2016. And then we started talking to Octopharma about it about mid 2016 and got a yes in I think early November of 2016. And then Chris started immediately um, getting himself ready and Rob too for um, for going to Nepal in what April of seventeen March March we March yeah. so yeah March and we started filming in December almost right away in Denver um, and then to your other question about the sourcing uh, of the funds so ninety eight percent of our funding has been through from Octopharma um, supporting the Everest climb the Mount Vincent climb and the work on the documentary and then the hemophilia the coalition for hemophilia B which is a patient organization that's specifically focused on people who have this certain kind of hemophilia B, which Chris does. They also contributed some funds toward extending post-production. Um, but that's been it, just those two sources. Okay. The, <clears throat> and I clearly tell me to fuck off if this compromises anything, but how did you, what were the initial channels that you tried, or and I guess more importantly succeeded with, getting to Octopharma, or decision makers within Octopharma about this? Like how, what was your method of approach? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And um, I was actually just talking to another documentary producer, Marilyn Ness, who uh, has a bunch of credits to her name, but um, has previously worked in hemophilia, and that's how we know each other. And we were talking about how when you're trying to finance a documentary, um, so often you're going it's going to people who are not necessarily film financers, but they have some interest in the cause or the topic that you are uh, featuring. And so there's an additional challenge of having to um, 
onboard someone to what it is to support a documentary if they're not used to supporting something like that. They might be financially in a position to support stuff, but like a film is a specific kind of thing and it's got a its own uh, workflow and, and life stages that you have to be ready for. Um, so I think it's really important the approach that you take. The founder of Save One Life is a lady named Lori Kelly and she's been working in hemophilia for 30 years as a mom of, a, of now an adult male with hemophilia. Um, but she has generated tons of relationships with everybody who's making decisions about what to support in hemophilia. And it was her, she had attended an event and met Wolfgang in person not too long before she, Chris, and I were having a three-way conversation about strategy. Um, and she was the one who identified that he might be the right person, but to go, you don't get to him, but we can go to Fleming. That the person right under him was someone that we're in a position now with a one-pager to send his way. And it was, initially it was a one pager and it came from Lori, you know, an email with us CC'd cause that was where the existing relationship was. Then the four of us sat down and now I have a relationship with Fleming so I could follow up with him directly. So we were, we were delicate about the management of the relationships and uh, in as succinct a way as possible, onboarding the expectations for, okay, this is a film, here's what can happen along the way, but we're, we're committing to a marathon, not a sprint here. Cool. That's, uh, yeah, the thing you, it's one of my biggest, uh, not doing a lot of diagnosis and narrative work for me, and one of my biggest envies of documentary is the uh, inherent uh, cause component of it that they're, you know, people care, don't, people don't even necessarily, I mean, you know, in your case, of course, they care about the story because it embodies the cause, but the narrative film, you're just trying to sell a story in most cases. Right. And that's actually one of the counterpoint to this is one of the most amazing things about Ask for Jane, the one I've been working on is there is a built-in cause to it, you know, mm. uh, reproductive rights and that being such a highly topical thing mm -hmm. in today's mm -hmm. political space. Uh, and it's been amazing to me how much easier it is yeah. <laughs> to process if people care about your idea even before they hear the story. It's just yeah, an amazing yeah. thing. Um, that's not to be, that suggests it's easy, of course, but it, it is something I'm very envious of in the documentary space, that you, you know, you're selling a, a thing that the world could use, not just another story, and that's true. Yeah, I mean, I've never had to fundraise for a narrative film, and it's an intimidating prospect. I'm sure the day will be here before long, and it's an intimidating <laughs> idea. Well, clearly there is a, a narrative uh, story in the works here extending from this documentary that will be released, and that's a given, right? Climbing Mount Everest is such a visually compelling narrative opportunity. <laughs> I'm more I'm going to advocate for the, the, the dark comedy version of my experience. <laughs> that's <laughs> good, too, dude. <laughs> I that's going to be a lot multi, more fun. Multi, uh, Rob's birthday at base camp? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. we've all seen Everest movies. We haven't seen the guy who had the shitty experience at base camp, for, yeah. you know? Well, dude, yeah, that's you, actually a good idea <laughs> I had a lot of time there to think about it if nothing else it would be a fantastic uh, you know marketing if you do it in some low scale way it would be a fantastic marketing tool for the documentary that's too. also a good idea yeah yeah, yeah. alright uh, additional Man. content I'm, uh -oh. here. I'm here for ideas guys yeah this is no dangerous. fee for that this is a no very... fee <laughs> good because we're out of money yeah <laughs> Uh, okay, nuts and bolts, and these, this is kind of structured more for narrative stuff too, but hope, but uh, I'll try to navigate it tactfully. Uh, so how many actual shoot days? No, how many shoot days? Well, uh, we had four shoots in Denver, plus I'd say another uh, maybe four shoots total with Chris 
And if we call each of those maybe three days, um, whatever that math ends up being, yeah. uh, like roughly 20 something. Uh, like 50 some days. Or well, something. then, uh, then there was Nepal. <laughs> <laughs> Nepal was 62 shoot days, uh, 57 of which I was by myself. Awesome. And part of the yeah, it was such like a so if you, I didn't yeah. I didn't count that up previously a lot beforehand you know, uh, you know such an odd flow because yeah there's so many days in a row in one location with one person doing everything, and then our other trips to Denver and the times we filmed with Chris outside of Denver, were so run and gun and catch come as catch can. Because we were, I mean, it felt like dancing between raindrops. And I think when you're doing DIY and you filmmaking, like that's, that's just part of it. But for us, that meant like identifying the one day that we could fly into Denver to get the interview with Chris's dad and the follow up with Jess, his wife, and a follow up with his mom. The one day that was available to us from the time she came back from base camp to he would be back from Everest. Um, the, the, the four days in December that like Chris was going to be there and his uncle would be available and our four person skeleton, but full team was available. It was just always like fighting for time and then maximizing the opportunity and just trying to shoot the shit out of wherever we were as best we could, because it was like, we're only going to get so many chances to be here. So get, get up, throw the drone up there, get inserts of this photograph, like just get it all because we might not have another shot. Um, and then, yeah, we had a bunch of days in a row with one guy in one place. So a very odd production schedule. If you look at it on, on like a calendar, how many days being the only person up there and you're there for 50 some odd days. So there, there had to be days where you're just like, fucking nothing has happened today. I'm not getting these fuck. I'm not today. I'm just fucking chilling. And then something happens and you're like, fuck. (laughs) Oh, so a couple of versions of that. So there was, there was 57 days by myself, 47 of which were at base camp. Um, and there was a lot of times I, I assumed, so I had a solar generator with a solar panel to, to, have all my power, which I quickly realized, um, it, it snows pretty much every fucking day there. And, um, there was three day snowstorms that would come in just about every week and which, which means solar power doesn't work at all anymore. And so, uh, there was many days where I was, you know, plug, like trying to figure out, okay, these batteries take X amount of time, blah, 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 blah. You know what? Nothing's allowed. Interesting is allowed to happen today, period. Um, I'm going like, to probably get, you know, maybe an hour's worth of footage off of anything. So we'll try an interview or maybe I'll just film some easy B-roll around uh, camp, uh, base camp. But thankfully, also, out of those 47 days, he only climbed 16 days. So the rest of the time, we were sitting around with our thumbs up our ass waiting for weather that was pretty. Uh, so they could climb safely and so, so that I could shoot uh, and have battery power and have, you know, power to run my laptops and the hard drives and dump all the footage. I mean, there's so much stuff that requires power that was like really stressful. Um, but there, but there's a lot of times, um, just about every hour there'd be a, an avalanche. This is, I guess, a good example of like when shit would happen and you'd be really pissed off about it. Uh, avalanches would happen about once an hour, but you didn't know. I mean, there could be six hours where nothing happens. And then there's an hour where they happen like every 20 minutes. You're like, yeah, Fuck, you know, there's, there's no notifications on your phone? And no, absolutely. No. <laughs> what you get is this, what you get is this big... What are we living in the fucking Stone Age? Exactly. <laughs> I got no notifications on my phone for two months. What you get is this big like, crack! 
And so you run out of tent, like, it's just a big one. And then you hear this, and you can't see it at first. And then you see it like rolling down the side of one mountain and you know, you try to get your shit up. And so I would film, I would have my camera ready for like four hours and just be sitting there like, okay, I'm really fucking cold. Something happened, please. Something happened, please. And nothing would happen. And I'd pack my shit up and then crack, you know, that happened a bunch. But... Um, pages and rolls are irrelevant. So you you mentioned the uh, crew hovered around four. So it was four on like the shoots in Denver and stuff where you had uh, semi control over the environment up on the mountain. It was just you the whole time, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. And in Nepal, there was four. The, the, when we came and did some stuff around the, with the Nepal hemophilia community and stuff, it was four again. Yeah, that was the four still. Uh, some number of locations. We kind of did that already too. What the hell did you eat? I usually one of the, the questions. I, the, uh, my my funnest question from this shotgun thing about production variables is how much did your the meals cost per plate and where did you get them from? But that's obviously not applicable in this situation. Because <laughs> like yeah. meal provision is like or food provision is like the base requirement to get productivity out of a film crew. You know, like no right. matter how shitty your budget is or how whatever your conditions are, like you gotta feed them. Yeah, so, the market runs so, on its like, stomach, man. I say right. that all the time. Um, but I think, well, there was a place in Denver, I mean, we were always just kind of grabbing, speaking of catch as catch can, I, we were just grabbing food wherever when we were in Denver. It was always, because we were packing so much in, it was like, where can we grab a meal right now in the car? Um, uh, but there was that one breakfast place. What was it called? I uh, forget. Prosper Oats. Yeah. Or Prospect Oats or Prosper Oats. Something, something like, like that. that. I don't know why it just popped into my yeah, head. Nice. I thought I was going to reach for it forever. Uh, that was like our breakfast place in Denver that we fell in love with, uh, cause they had like cheap, really healthy breakfast and that's the most important part. Well, we also were like, we started by just having so much like bacon and beer and just like heavy, like Denver, like but Yeah, Chris and Jess were like, stuff. this is what you want, right? This yeah, is what you want. Like, yeah. And then waking up being like, no. And <laughs> yeah. so then this place was like, Hey, we have, we have uh, acai bowls. And we're like, yeah, you, we're going to go to you yeah. in the morning for energy. Um, never been to Denver. I hear nothing but good things. Oh, but actually asked for Jane's point in there in like a few weeks. <laughs> I'm gonna keep that streak alive of avoiding Denver. Yeah, 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 I like it. If I had to live in the middle of the country, it would be Denver. Yeah, cool for sure. City. I was like, I've literally never heard anyone say a word bad about it. It's yeah. like one of those cities that I've never heard someone say something. Like yeah, that, you know? yeah. Which there aren't many of. I don't know why yeah. I say one of them. Like, there's a bunch of them. <laughs> Fair enough. But that was a neat part. Like, I had never been to Denver. Well, that, I was there for a quick weekend as a kid for a medical thing, so it was very in and out. But. Um, it like we've since been to Denver six seven times, so it's it's it has been it was it's it's cool the things that happen through the course of a film that are just like unintended happy byproducts of the film, you know. So in this case, like getting to know Denver a little bit and getting to see Denver and appreciate Denver, um, that's just something now that like I have because of this project, which yeah. is really neat, really absolutely. neat. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so production timeline, now you kind of, yeah, I think you give me a, you give me a very detailed, I don't need to ask that again. Uh, most notable constraints, so not just money, that's obvious with any independent production, but what did not having enough money make most difficult for you? Uh, and I guess this is definitely something you both probably should give me an answer for. Yeah, you know, I can, I can say when we, when it came down to like figuring out what gear to take, cause we have a production company and so we have, we have some gear that we were shooting the main shoots with. So there was no like, oh, we got to get extra this or extra that relatively. I mean, there was some things here and there, but, uh, but I couldn't just walk away with the equipment for two and a half months by myself. But at the same time, I also couldn't bring a lot of that stuff up cause it's so heavy. 
um, and it requires so much more uh, power and so much more everything. And I was going to be by myself. Just and what, so you fit in a big sock? Is that what you had to do? Uh, roughly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, more like what I could, like what I could packing, stuff packing. on some poor 15-year-old porter's back who so had to lug my heavy crap anyway. Um, but they and, – and on my own back as we were hiking. But uh, So what I chose, the kind of system uh, – we run with Canon uh, C300 Mark IIs uh, usually – and so we found that the the Canon One DX Mark II was a DSLR or is a DSLR that that matches pretty well with that camera. It's also a lot lighter and easier to manage. Um, and I chose that also because um, there's no there's no uh, you know there's no Sammy's camera or like B and H anywhere near base camp. You're a ten day walk from a store period, uh, so there was there was just no getting anything um, back. So all backups had to be brought in with me. And that, especially in 2017, was like the the Canon DSLR uh, systems were like the very ubiquitous systems. So, um, and just not having enough money to have three backups of all my lenses, of uh, all my camera bodies, of all my audio equipment, of all my everything, I had a pretty good idea that I could find somebody with a Canon if I needed. Like, hey man, can I? Can I borrow your lens for a little bit? Or can I borrow your battery for a little? Can I buy that thing off you for a little bit? You know, something that, like that kind of haggling could be done if, if necessary. Thankfully, it didn't have to get to that point. Um, it got close, but it didn't have to get to that point. <laughs> um, but you know, that's that's where I was able to kind of shave some stuff off there. And then also, secondly, uh, with base camp gear was I, had, I required a lot of clothing to keep myself warm because it never got above freezing ever. Um, and uh, while a lot of Outdoor companies weren't necessarily interested in sponsoring the film because it wasn't any sort of first descent, really. There was no, like, people had climbed Everest before, people climb Everest every year. They, they're they more interested in the the aggressive uh, people who are really going out there and tackling the big, awesome Extreme things. Shit, but that's not to say that they weren't interested in the mission. And, the, and there were a couple of companies that provided some free gear or some at-cost gear. I mean, I got a down coat for, like, $20. So when I say at-cost, I mean, they gave it to us at, like, warehouse cost, not even, like, the at-cost that your buddy who works in the retail store might get you. I'm talking, like, like what they pay the person in China to make it for them for at-cost. So we got a lot of gear. I mean, probably saved $1,000 that, that way. Yeah. Um, so that was super helpful, too. Um, from a, on, a, on the creative and like storytelling side, um, we didn't have a lot of time. So, and, and I had not done this before. So trying to figure out what's the best use of every interview, every bit of time we have with Chris and Jess, his wife. Um, and then accepting that, like, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, obviously the, the hope and belief was that Chris was going to have a safe and successful climb and summit of Everest but that's not guaranteed. So shaping a story for any potential outcome and asking, trying to think through the outcomes and asking questions that would serve like different versions of the story. Um, but then also you're just limited too in terms of time. And then, and then good news, like nothing devastating or nothing that bad or challenging happened to Chris on Everest, which fantastic for like life for film you know like what are we showing people like where's the drama where's the conflict if there's not a whole lot of struggle going on so you know it was one of the things that Steven Sander the editor and I were sort of like you know talk about like dark comedy was sort of like hmm about when like okay he did it he summoned it it's like okay how'd it go I was like good no he's okay yeah it's like 
Okay, okay, good, good. That's good. That's generally good. Um, but then it's like, so well, shit, what's the story? Like, what's our story on Mount Everest? And like, yeah, we're not up there with a huge crew of people and fancy cameras. And like, we're not leaning on, you know, this incredible never before seen, you know, like capture of Everest. Like we are relying on our story um, to drive this film home. So then looking at like what actually happened and from what you have, finding the story and like I watch it now and it's it's all there like it doesn't feel like there's like gaps or a lack of story but in part that that had to do with decisions made in the edit process and um we were bound by what we had you know the documentary reveals itself like you I can't decide what it is it's not an archival documentary we're literally it's a follow-along so it's like it's going to reveal itself and then we just have to shape around that yes you can what was the uh Shot to edit ratio, footage wise, what? Uh, <laughs> well, we're we're down. We're at eighty five minutes runtime. I don't know. Like, what do we have from Everest? I mean, I, a lot. Yeah. I, God, hours and hours and hours. I. Man, I conservatively came back with maybe thirty forty hours. Um. Oh, that's that's not right. I think we had probably like a hundred hours. That's what. That. Yeah. yeah, I think we have a hundred because I remember yeah. talking with Josh about this. So yeah, a hundred to get to ninety to eighty-five minutes. One percent. That, that, <laughs> yeah. that is something I am not envious of in the documentary process. <laughs> that makes you want to jump out a window. And you know, it's, it's crazy. Like when we got it down to like okay, five acts, they're each twenty minutes, uh, or we're going for twenty minutes, but they're each like twenty-six, twenty-seven. It's like all right, here's here's the two-hour rough cut version okay now we're going to trim that down we get this down to a hundred or uh, yeah a hundred minutes um all right we still got to lose 10 minutes but each time we're shrinking like it's like rounds of survivor like people keep making the cut and so it's like we're we fuck like we've already decided a few times to keep these moments but in order to shrink it we have to like keep losing moments um and then and then like realizing there's a few things we lost we want to bring back and it's like well where are we making the room for that and there were a few things at the end, like the last five minutes, like half of them, it was sort of like, oh, you know, it like hurts a little bit because you spend so much fucking time too yeah. on some of these sequences um, and trying to make it work and moving pieces around and like, wait, maybe if it goes here, if the song starts here and it threads this way and then ultimately just being like, fuck it, getting, it, getting rid of it entirely and accepting that it will live in the special features of the DVD and like bonus content on the website and just like for those who got to see the rough cuts. Um, but that's also something that I learned in listening to a lot of interviews with documentarians and executive producers of documentaries, which was also revealing, um, you know, getting falling too, too in love with your footage or your story. It like doesn't serve anything. Um, and I feel like this, I feel like I ask a lot of the audience in some ways in this documentary, it moves at a pretty relentless pace. There's a lot of information. Um, and so anytime it was like, we don't need that. Uh, towards the end, I tried to be a little bit just get cut and like not laboring over it with my editor but just like let's just just get rid of it 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 um we're asking a lot of people let's just get rid of it so yeah yeah it's hard man yeah and like the flip side of that too yeah I've, you know I've edited the past two of my features and like the it's hard with the one of the like bad sides of the ease of technology now is how easy it is to just go fuck it we'll just, just open it back up yeah. like, I got an idea yeah. let's do that you know yes. like, I, like I, with Catch 22 I finished that book I was like I am fucking done with this I've gotten a million fucking 
inputs, like we mold over this thing, I'm fucking done. Put yeah. these hardware drives away. I'm right. like, I'm <laughs> plugging them and I'm putting them in the closet and they're done. Yeah. Uh, and then I watched uh, The Big Short, uh, which anything with him and his editor, like they're just, just no regard for form, break the fourth wall, do whatever they want. They're just so crazy and like, you know, have you seen Vice yet where they just fucking end the movie and roll credits halfway through? It's like, oh my God, you fucking brilliant son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh, and then the movie just goes again. Uh, so yeah, I watched that and I was like, no, get, open it back up. Yeah. <laughs> like I saw things in there. I was like, I, I wanted to steal that. <laughs> and that's so dangerous too because like as I, I, I purposely didn't watch too many Everest documentaries yeah, or yeah. docuseries. Like a little bit when Rob, Josh, our cinematographer and I were first kind of coming up with a production plan and wanting to agree on like looks and some stuff about life at base camp. Like there was some brass tacks reasons to get a little bit familiar, but then I didn't want to for a bunch of reasons. Then once Chris was done and we were in the edit and I started to watch those and other mountain climbing docs, it's like, oh shit, maybe we need like this kind of a thing. Or like, oh, we don't have that kind of a thing. Maybe we need I should, that kind I should of have just thing. locked myself in a room. Yeah, it's, it's, it's dangerous. And, you know, I don't, I don't have any, I don't know the answers, but like there is something to, I think there's an Einstein quote about like, it's not that I was the smartest, it was that I was willing to stay with the problem longer. And I, I felt like that was a lot of this process for me. It was like just a willingness to kind of stay with something until it felt exhausted, until it just felt totally exhausted. Um, and at times that meant really laboring over like, are we missing like a, a spine interview of a, of a Everest expert? Let's go see if we can try to find someone. Maybe, maybe not. Okay, do we need to like open the movie here and go this way? What if we move that to the... And then just exhausting all those options in one way or another, uh, and eventually like the gut saying like, you've done your work, like you've explored that option, you can put that to bed now. Or on occasion being like, oh, that's a great idea, you should use that. But I found more often than not, I wound up just a limit, like it, just no, you know, just no. There's something about, I think the editor and I did a nice job up front of breaking the story as an outline um, before Chris went for the summit. Like what we what we kind of broadly thought the five acts would kind of look like based on he's done these five climbs before he's already grown up he already has hemophilia we already know we have to educate people on hemophilia and that set us up really well for when things came in to make full decisions and he's a phenomenal editor too that that goes a, a very long way um, so I think in retrospect I probably didn't need to exhaust myself as much as I did with some of the thought process around like procedure stuff and like do we need this do we need that can we do it like this what about this but um but I, I'm, I'm glad I did because I, I think there's a eliminating the wonder is part of it too you know being able to confidently now say like nope that's the way the film should be like I, I very confidently now feel like that is the film that's the film plus if you didn't exhaust yourself and become miserable like did you even make a fucking movie <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean yeah, all over suicide at least a handful of times. Yeah, you, you gotta, gotta you really not apply yourself. If you, gotta, <laughs> you gotta come to the brink of a lot of big decisions. <laughs> you know. Uh, okay, so the flip side of that constraint idea, a memorable benefit. So I find that not having enough money frequently forces you into generating creativity, generating ideas you otherwise wouldn't have bothered to do uh, or spend the time to do. Uh, are there any examples you can think of, either of you uh, on this, where that was the case? Probably lots of them, but anything worth talking about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, reality is your best asset. So, like, we, for this film, did have multiple opportunities where Chris the Climber and Believe's production team were going to be at a certain place at a certain time, 
and we could catch them for a follow-up interview, especially once we were into the edit and we started noticing where our story gaps were. And I was like, oh, we need some like more from Chris about like the financial implications of trying to climb all these mountains. Like these, this is an expensive pursuit. Um, and realizing like, oh shit, we don't really have that. Um, and notice, like just noticing where our schedules aligned that we could catch him for a couple hours somewhere without having to spend any additional money to be there because our production company was already going to be there. Um, which is obviously its own kind of advantage, but like looking for where those advantages exist, um, you know, what Chris's parents, like ingratiating ourselves to them and, and getting their willingness to give over as much archival material as possible for free. So like that's, there's content that we can put on the screen. That's not costing us anything. Yeah, harsh. They were charging. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> But yeah, just like, I mean, I'd say more than anything, I was just trying to maximize the, the opportunities that reality provided us with. Um, man, and then just like inspiring everybody's best, you know? I mean, everybody just had to perform at the top level of their abilities and do things that made them uncomfortable. Um, and just, you know, in as much as I could, trying to generate an energy where people wanted to do that. And as there were rough cuts to show and advanced cuts... You know, hopefully the, the team is continuing to see the film evolve and like wants to continue to give and wants to continue to fight for that extra thing or a little more time or whatever it may How be. How many instances would you say there were of that where you were um, giving, you know, internal status updates, I guess, you know, over that timeline of shooting? How many times did you assemble something that you're like, okay, I have something more to show you guys to generate that, again, relationship man or not relationship management, but just personnel management, like keeping them inspired by showing them the progress. Like how many times would you say over the production process you physically did that? Or was it just like, I'm cracking up, up a new Vimeo thing here and there. You guys watch it if you want. <laughs> there was a little bit of that, but there were also fall of 17. Our editor sent us, he sent me the first rough of, it's like a 40 minute first act. Um, which probably like 12 of those minutes made it into the film. Um, but it was really well put together. And uh, I was with Rob, Josh, and our sound guy, Dave Beatty, um, on a different job, and we just watched it together one night um, while we were hanging out so that we could, like, all appreciate, you know, that thing we're doing is, like, this is real. Like, this is real, and it's coming together really nicely. And then in January of 18, I met the editor. He lives overseas, so I, I went and worked with him for a week, and then about a month later, we had a rough cut of the whole film and we got like maybe 20, 25 like of our team and some of the people just one degree out to, to come in and offer input. Um, and then with some, I think there were like sequences and certainly I've like shared little sequences with Rob along the way just to be like, do, do, what do you, what does this make sense to you or do, what do we need? I'm trying to solve this problem. Is that actually solving this problem or no? Um, so he's probably been privy to a fair amount of that um, along the way. But I don't know, maybe like three or four times in some like, let's sit in a room together and take in this moment. Um, we've also been lucky because we had promotional opportunities within the hemophilia patient organizations to do symposiums about this process and the making of the film, um, the reason behind it and the mission of Save One Life. So there's also been many times over the last few years that we've been in a room with... 50, 100, a few hundred people talking about the film, sharing some kind of content from the film. So there have been all these other, you know, hopefully little infusions of energy when you get into a room. It's like a lot of people care that this is happening, you know, which is 
an amazing thing because it's hard to feel that all the time, you know, right? When you're like in the editing suite or you're just like shivering and trying to film something that's going to maybe or maybe not happen at base camp. Like there's plenty of lonely, boring, annoying parts of filmmaking. So it's been very fortunate to have a process where many times we've been in rooms where people really, 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 really are rooting for this. Very cool. Uh, Biggest mistake you each have made personally on the project? Fuck. (laughs) I mean, I... I, It's hard to say mistake. The stuff that comes to mind with the stuff... I, um... How do I even phrase this? When I... When I was research, I'd never filmed anything at uh, temperatures like that before. On <laughs> um, and I'd never been that far away from a camera shop before. I'd never been that you know that remote. I'd never been that cold for that long. And so I I did my due diligence though. I talked to like filmmakers. I watched, I watched on, like four YouTube videos. I've said I, yeah. No, I, I, talked to, I talked to everyone I could. I I, uh, I fanboyed the fuck out on people who I follow on Instagram, and a lot of them responded to me and gave me a lot of really helpful advice, um, which I like screenshot it because I'm still fanboys of them. Uh, I, I I like really researched the shit out of it. And so when everyone said this is something you're gonna think about, this is something you're gonna think about, this is something you're gonna think about, I I thought about and creatively in the budget about figure out how to cover all of those bases. None of those things fucked up for me, but like the first day, all of these things fucked up for me when we, when we actually got up to base camp. A couple pieces of equipment froze and snapped or broke. All this kind of crazy shit went down and I was like, oh man. So uh, what I did learn out of that though, I wouldn't call it a mistake because there's no way I could have planned for that with all the, the work I did, but, it, but I, what I learned from that where, uh, was like how even more... Uh, like I just have like that extra reserve tank of rolling with the punches that, um, you know, I thought I could roll with punches till I thought about, till I figured that stuff out. And then I was like, wow, I really can fucking roll with the punches. I was stressed out, (laughs) um, a lot of that time. And, uh, and it took me until I was on the plane home. I remember I had like four seats open cause no one wants to fly from Kathmandu to, to Qatar. Uh, and so I had these four seats open next to me on the plane and I just laid down and started crying cause I was so stressed out and it was finally done and thinking about like all the stuff that went wrong and how like I just barely got by a lot. Um, I'll never forget that feeling, but yeah, I guess like mistakes is hard to say, but I definitely realized my ability to roll with punches that I had never known before. Yeah. I'm such a control freak dude. The idea of you know, I am like, I sit down and prepare, I'm a psychopath, and contingencies upon contingencies for these things, and like, I've done enough too, where like, I, I have, a, I'm almost certain that I have every base covered at this point, Exactly. You know? Like, when shit happens on the fly that I wasn't expecting, I almost like, appreciate that, like, wow, it's good to see something <laughs> well, I've seen before, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah. only like one little minute instance in those cases, not just yeah. an avalanche, uh, <laughs> per se, of yeah. shit going wrong, like, I, just, I can't even imagine the fucking... Yeah, I wouldn't even try. I wouldn't even try. I just wouldn't, like I said, I wouldn't even try <laughs> to, to do that, to do what you've done. <laughs> um, I think, you know, the the interviews, we never, we never got an interview with Chris that could serve as the spine of the film, which sounds crazy because we interviewed him so many times. But I never, I think going into a future project, um, when everything is said and done, 
coming up with an outline that covers the, the full four or five act of the structures of the, of the film and then sitting down for an interview where you can really hit on all the beats. Um, and the reason that that kind of is something that sticks with me, uh, it, the, the beginning of the film was always tricky. Getting the first act right was always tricky. And in part because we don't, we don't, we didn't have like a clean, like Chris in a, is sitting in the chair in the well lit room and here comes the story. Like we don't, I didn't set us up for that. Each interview had its kind of little bucket of things that we were talking about and then we we're moving on to something else, moving on to something else. Um, and, and part of that was the parameters of the, the film that we had and the days we had to shoot it and all that. Part of it was a lack of experience. Um, yeah, and part of it was lack of experience and just not knowing like, oh, that's going to, that would be really helpful later. And I, and I had to, we had to do a lot of patching in editing um, and a lot of like, it, it just, it bottlenecks work in the editing and writing process that could be solved with a slightly tweaked approach to production. Um, so that was, that was the biggest kind of mistake is not, not thinking or not realizing like how important that is in, in a lot of films. And I, I like the way that we handled it ultimately. Um, but it took a lot of finessing to overcome. That was a, that was a, that was a mistake. I will say though, if I can fanboy out on, on that for a second, because you definitely, there, there, we didn't know the story coming in up front. You know, we didn't know if Chris was going to make it. We didn't know what his experience was going to be. It was a lot of, you know, there's different kinds of documentaries, obviously. There's ones where you know the story beginning to end and you just want to highlight it because no one listens. Um, and there's a lot of documentaries like this case or like Free Solo that just won an Oscar. Chai Vassarelli had to string together all that stuff afterwards to make uh, you know, to make a story because when they were filming it, they had no idea if he was going to die. They had no idea uh, that he would find this girlfriend that was going to have a huge impact on his climbing, that he would, uh, that the filmmaker was going to have such a freak out the entire time. I mean, they had an idea, obviously, but that, you know, they were really nervous about filming their friend dying. And you see them all having to put that story together afterwards because they didn't know. But, you know, they want an Oscar and they don't have a spine interview. So That is true. That is very true. Anyway. What can I? <laughs> I'm optimistic. Uh, having been through, you kind of already answered this to a degree, but uh, having been through and learned much of what you will from this project, being the stage you're at in it, uh, what is the thing you most want to do differently in your next feature? And it doesn't have to be, I mean, you just discussed a mistake that you wish you could, you think it was a mistake, a thing that you wish you could change. It doesn't have to be a mistake. Like, you could want to do something. Like, I've had one of the filmmakers I've interviewed was just like, I want to, we shot in an urban environment, I don't want to fucking shoot in a city, I want to go to the woods. Mm, you know, right, like, just right, like right. something different. And I guess in this case, because you guys have a documentary here, like, do you want to do another fucking documentary? Or do you, like, fuck, I want to tell a story where I have more control over what that story is and I am less exposed to chance of story development, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, like, what? Yeah. You want to take that first? Um, I mean, I think um, every time we shoot anything, even if it's just a little video project or if it's a documentary, I mean, we're already, thankfully, working on other stuff. Um, I, I'm always trying to get better. So I think I'm always trying to just be smarter. Obviously, I, the, as soon as you ask that question, the immediate stuff that popped in my head was like the more expensive things, you know? Like, well, I love to spend money doing this. And of course, I love more luxury to do this. And we are always wanting to, we're always talking about, man, if we could just maximize our days better, if we could have more time to shoot this and more time to shoot that and more time to make sure we get this and that. And then it's like, well, so what we're saying is we need more money to spend. <laughs> you know, what we're saying is we wish we had more time to spend or whatever. Um, it, but you know, it really, it, but we're, we are every day we shoot trying to, trying to fine tune, uh, and make sure we're getting the stuff we need to so that we can get the stuff we want too. 
uh, but kind of separating the wheat from the chaff a little bit beforehand as, as opposed to afterwards. Um, but yeah, I think we're doing a pretty good job of that. So just becoming more efficient. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Becoming more efficient. Yeah. Um, what, is it, what was the question exactly again? What, are we what would you like to do different? Project? Yeah, what would you like to do different? Your next thing. What would you like? What was some? What is something you would like to be different about it? Uh, and like I said, it doesn't have to be any sort of like, oh, I wish I, had, you know, yeah, this got fucked up. It's just something different environmentally or circumstantially, whatever you know. I mean, you know, this was so unique because it. It was about uh, a peer with hemophilia of the same age who has a similar kind of humanitarian interest. Um, and as director, writer, producer, it's such an all-in, like, it's, it's, it, I feel like it's just been a part of my identity in the world for the last few years. And I'm, I'm very ready to share that and let other people interact with it and to back away from it like it's for other people um the moment it's ready with all the content that we make and i i personally feel like as soon as we hit upload or go live or release it's like i'm 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 done and like my experience of it is is kind of over i have bad news patrick <laughs> <laughs> no but like, emotionally it's like i'm it's for right, other people right. now like it's mine until it's it's shared and then it's for everybody else and and i'm pretty ready to like for that part of the process mm-hmm. Um, so I think with the next project, I'm excited to have a little bit more for it to not be quite so personal, so to speak. Um, this was a big one and I'm sure I'll do other things that feel equally personal, but to have a little bit of breathing room, um, actually, I'm not so sure of that, that I'll do other things that feel as personal. This was a very unique one. I don't think anything will ever be this again. Um, I think I also now know something about what it means to be a creative producer and an executive producer in a creative capacity where I can help story shape and feedback for a director and like kind of overlook plans and and a director writer's approach to production and and consult, but not necessarily be hands-on because it is such like when you commit to that D word, it is such a commitment um, that doesn't go away for years and I think with my position at Believe too, and now this experience and paired with other experiences we've had, I'm in a good position to, to work at that level while other people are executing more projects than I would be able to, you know, be a writer, director, producer on. I, it allows me to like tell more stories, but also in a way that kind of gives a bit of breathing room that I'm craving. Yeah. Uh, it's a couple of little project specific things here that I, I, one, what is the, the, the um, what is the cost of the mechanic of that uh, guide team up on the mountain? Like, what, you know, you said you like you have, like, a porter and, like, the obviously the guy. Yeah, yeah. Like, how much, the, a fucking, I'm sure they give you probably your tent or something. Like, you know, like, yeah, yeah. what is the actual cost to create that even limited infrastructure up there outside of the production I don't, which in, your, yeah. in this case, it was just you, really. So I don't know what a lot of the nuts and bolts costs were because I paid the guide service and then also the, the kind of base camp management service. For, yeah, that's what I mean. For you yeah, as a person, what the, would, what's the, that cost? The trek itself, because they're paying out like your porters and they're paying out the tea houses that you sleep in at night, uh, was, uh, I think, thirty thirty five hundred dollars 
And then, um, but my, my time at base camp was, I think, $3,200, which is something like, whatever it did, it came out to $75 a day for my food and board, which were, uh, a room and board, I guess you could say, which were, you know, is, is a tent and, um, and a mattress, uh, you know, a little foam mattress, and then, and then some, some food, which was quite delicious, despite the fact that it all came from cans, and it was mostly spam and beans, but it was... Probably any input is good up there. <laughs> I mean, anything, any anything input. warm, honestly, yeah, yeah. like anything warm felt awesome. So that that's also that seventy five days inclusive of the I don't know adventure component of that. You know, I mean, I guess you're yeah, actually guess doing the yeah, yeah. Like once you start climbing on the mountain, it's a lot more expensive. Um, just with the government, you have to pay um, Sherpa guides to ferry your stuff up there for you because it's an immense, an immense expedition to to set up all the camps for you along the way so that you're ready as a climber to go, um, to go up the mountain. It's, it's such an undertaking. It, so it admit, it jumps, uh, tens of tens of thousands of dollars at that point. Um, so thankfully <laughs> for the production and for myself, I was not going above base camp. That's a, it's, you know, I mean, of course it's fucking fantastic and amazing that he did it, but just the, the general idea of, climbing Mount Everest, hearing, like, that infrastructure required just for this one human being to do this activity is, like, I don't know, is super indulgent. Oh, there's, oh, there's, a, there's an HBO sports documentary that just came out that's really dives into uh, the the life cost versus that indulgence, you know. Right. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty uh, frustrating and sad to look at. Right. Uh, I, we talked about this a little bit, but maybe just to give, like, a very defined talk about it i guess so the, the call you know, there's a call to action at the end of the film and I mean, you've already talked about the heavy involvement it has with what's the name of the organization again? save one life save one life right so uh and i mean you, you know see you said that she was your inlet to funding with the uh, pharma company that financed most of this so again you've already touched on this but like can you, can, i guess just give me a uh you know a, an overview of when was the decision made to have that really close? I mean, I guess if she found the funding, but maybe immediately, right? That to have that really close alignment and have the film be uh, a way to carry the message of these organ, both these organizations, I suppose, not just the 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 charitable organization, but yeah, also the... a, a certain amount of it was was just inexplicably tied to the story because each of Chris's first five climbs had a fundraising and awareness raising component to them and his his videos and his photographs from the summits of those mountains all had him with the save one life flag and so it was already like just a truthful you couldn't tell the story of chris's uh adventure to be the first hemophiliac to climb the seven summits without touching upon it in some way but that said, I made no promises to save one life and and explicitly made no promises to Octopharma about mentioning the film because my I was pretty um, uh, clear, I guess, on if we're going to do this from the moment that Chris first sat down with me, if we're going to do this, then we're going to do a real feature documentary. It's not going to be uh, an infomercial documentary that's become quite trendy. It's not going to just be like, you know, uh, legal and regulatory marketing commercial approved by pharma. We're doing a documentary feature film. 
and we have to be willing to be exposed in that way as individuals, Chris, and your family. Like, you're going to get asked questions you don't want to be asked and think about, and you're going to have cameras in your face when you don't want them. And Octopharma, I can't really promise you that you're going to be mentioned in this film at all, but you'll be mentioned here and in all these other supporting ways. And everybody got on board with that. And then through the course of the process, the story wanted... Um, wanted Octopharma and how they came. They ultimately had to solve a problem story-wise. Chris didn't have funding for his last two climbs and like no one really cared that he was doing this amazing thing. Like he was not able to generate much attention uh, or fundraise to the degree that you would think that someone doing this amazing thing would, but he wasn't. Um, so we needed to fulfill the story beat of like, how do we recover from this like low place in the second act where it's like, this might be over, there might not be funding. Well, we got in touch with the right people. They saw the vision. They said yes. So the story dictated like, hey, Octopharma, we need actually you guys in the film. And can I get an interview with Fleming? Because we actually have to cover a couple story beats. Um, and then the call to action with Save One Life, you know, with where the film ended, with, you know, Chris kind of reflecting on like what comes next and like the end of his Seven Summits quest, um, it just felt appropriate. It, I didn't. I was. I was concerned about it feeling too public service announcement or like I said, that kind of infomercial sort of feel. If you put a call to action to contribute to a nonprofit at the end of a film, but it was like, man, if eighty five minutes in, people already have their impression. They're either going to feel that way or they're not. So, putting the call to action at the end of the film, that's not really going to change anything. And the truth is, people get. You mentioned in the beginning, it's an emotional film and people, we've screened it now in front of plenty of folks and it's an emotional film. And I don't think it's just because we screened it in front of a lot of people who are interested in hemophilia. It's just an emotional story. And uh, this is a worthwhile cause. And so right at that moment where the film's ended and if you're inspired to want to do something, here's what you can do and here's where you can go to do it. Um, so yeah, it just felt like the right thing to do. But was by no means a, at the onset of the relationship a guarantee for anybody. Have you have you um, since making that decision done any? And again, tell me to fuck off if this compromises anything. But the, has that decision? Have you not dangled it to the organizations? But been like, we're thinking of doing this. It been it behooves you in this way. Is there? I mean, are they already just like on board with? We'll share with whatever with our audiences, social media channels, what have you, or has there been any level of bartering about like an exchange of this call to action for communicating this to your audience, you know, the people that you have access to, you know, I don't know. No. no, no, with this film, like the, 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 the larger hemophilia bleeding disorders community is, is in like right. they're in they want to share it they get the mission right. um since chris completed the climbs he's become the executive director of this organization so all it's like you know the money's literally going under his jurisdiction to continue his mission so if you just watched him for 85 minutes and feel so compelled right. like right. you couldn't guarantee that your money's going to be any better spent right. um but i will say i do think what we've created in the way that the the corporate pharmaceutical client the nonprofit organization partner the protagonist and his family and our production company and agency, the way that these entities came together to create this film that is having tremendous impact on this core community and will help broaden the awareness about hemophilia to a larger, I mean, we're, here we are doing this podcast, right? Like there are ways that this helped us spread a larger message about hemophilia. I think this is a model we can repeat 
in other disease states and in other health communities and other social communities where we can find the right nonprofit partner, the right corporate backer, the right story from that community, and we are absolutely the right company to maximize the opportunity if all four of those entities wanted to come together. So I definitely see how we could repeat this process in other places. And we'll say uh, if that, that that call to action feels to me organic. I mean, obviously I'm biased, but it, yeah, you know, I, I feel like you guys are like feel under attack about the idea. No, 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 no. Because no, because you see that you see that a lot, you know at a lot of um, at the end of a lot of things, if people are like, if you feel so compelled, definitely you know chip in the cup. But it's right. uh, you know it's it's certain. First off, it's not our production company. We're asking you to chip in the money into. Right. Um, but it's like when you watch people like Chris's journey, so, so you just many put people up a Patreon link in there and yeah exactly <laughs> if you dug this fucking give to our patreon yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's the same call to action chris was putting on his facebook the whole time he was doing the climb it's the same call to action that worked and people from all around the world were joining in on it was amazing and it and you know everyone feels so compelled and, and there's no real way once you see all the stuff that the film shows and the, all the kind of hardships that the people in the developing world face who have who have a bleeding disorder it's the only real way that any an average person can help. And it's, you know, I, I help like totally, you know, I, I have a kid I sponsor, um, and I drive a 15 year old car, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> it, you, there's anybody can do it. And, um, and so, but there's no other way I could have an effect like that. I mean, other, other than participating and helping make this movie, there's no real way I can have that kind of effect. And, but, but I can that easily. And so I think so many people will see that movie and if they are affected by it, you know, to see how easy it is, and then instantly jump onto it. Yeah, too. it's. I mean, it's just amazing. The, re- the reason I'm actually asking these questions is because we're leaning towards doing this with Ask for Jane, and like the idea, and we've had these discussions, and blah blah blah. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's a very compelling thing to me. Like the idea that, like you said, you know, someone, so few people even know how to. What is the way to help this? After they said there was this person who was completely naive or, or ignorant, rather, of the topic at hand. I was. I mean, I, I, I had a vague idea of what hemophilia was prior to watching this film, sure. and uh, the ease of putting something at the end of this that gives that layman if you will the opportunity to yes help in a very simple and easy to understand way that anyone literally walk the way i download a music uh, or a, a, a film soundtrack at the end of a movie when i'm walking out of the theater sometimes just because i like the music like it's that level of ease and, right. and yeah. uh, mobility to, right. to the to the action which is you know fucking cool thanks <clears throat> okay uh how can we follow the project <laughs> and are there any notable dates coming up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are. Uh, so Bombardier Blood is the name of the film, and Bombardier Blood has a Facebook page, Bombardier Blood has an Instagram account, Bombardier Blood has a Twitter page, and bombardierblood.com is where all things about the film are located, our EPK, our, our teaser trailer, um, and upcoming dates. Uh, the most interesting date, so Rob, uh, along with like, another colleague of ours, Amy... You just played up in Fargo. Astro James playing at that theater today. Oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, oh, today? <laughs> oh, that's funny. I played today, or this morning. Oh, dude, you gotta get a picture of the... Of the it's, I, it's beautiful. I'm super bummed. That, I mean, we, I've fucking been traveling for the last month going to festivals. Like yeah. Omaha, New York. I so badly... Fargo was, yeah. looks like a really cool theater, but it's I so cool. couldn't bring myself to fucking... Yeah, so we've been having screenings at patient organization events almost every weekend. Um, February and March and then April 14th we'll screen in New York for the first time um, and it's a fundraiser screening that the New York City Hemophilia Chapter is hosting but the screening itself though free um, there are fundraising mechanisms for Save One Life 
Um, our team is going to be there. Chris will be there. Um, and we are also this week announcing in conjunction with that screening, the attachment of Alex Borstein as an executive producer. So she's, um, known for her role as Susie on The Marvelous Miss Maisel. She voices Lois and Family Guy. Um, she also has mild hemophilia and has a daughter with mild hemophilia and has other members in her family with hemophilia. Um, so she's come on board to help put her name and a little bit of her muscle behind this as well. Um, so yeah, some exciting updates and then things like that. And when it's available broadly, bombardierblood.com or the social channels. Yeah, I would think, I mean, I have no idea where you guys, nor am I asking you to talk about it, but the, the distribution conversation, uh, I would think the opportunity for like tug type theatrical, even if you're unable to secure that in a really widespread fashion, uh, would be fucking immense with a cause like this. And, and given the, again, visual, you know, you have like... From your yeah. lips to the Lord's yeah. ears. <laughs> I was like, yes, yes. Keep yeah. keep that, th- that those thoughts in, yeah. in your thoughts and prayers. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the part of the process that we're in now. So, right. yeah. Uh, yeah, here's hoping. Yeah, no question. It's a fucking... That is a beast of the process, no doubt. It's easy as hell to make them, hard as hell to get people to watch them these days. Uh, okay, so... Out of the project, last question, other than talking about yourselves... Define the phrase independent filmmaking as you see it. No constraints to that context or definition of your answer. I'd say um, independent filmmaking to me is, uh, is always had a huge DIY element because um, I just haven't had the access to funds or to uh, really excellent people who, who I don't, wouldn't have to DIY with. Um, to, to kind of make any sort of film I've been a part of a reality. Are you trying so, to say us independent filmmakers are not excellent, Rob? Oh, uh, no, no, no. But like, no, you I see don't. independent films in the theaters these yeah, days yeah. that are made for $60 million, and that's not an independent film to me. You know, an independent film requires a lot of struggle and passion to get the, the, the story across the finish line. And so, to me, that has always had a huge DIY element to it and a lot of... Um, you know, yeah, a lot of a lot of struggle and passion to get across the finish line. I like that. I'll go back to that phrase. Yeah, that's a good. That's good. And just kind of building on that, I think when the people that you're on set with are really the only other people you have to answer to, um, you're working in an independent film. And I like working in those capacities because the people who are there, they're there. They're probably underpaid. They're definitely tired. Uh, there's curveballs constantly, and if if that if if the people who are there want to deal with all that, that's because there's something about this project that makes it worth doing. And um, then all, if we're also the ones making the decisions about the project, it's informed by those best equipped to make decisions, and not by people who exist in some far off corner and have nothing to do with what we're experiencing here in real time. So that, that's what I think it means to me is when those are really the only other people that I have to answer to. Amen. How can people find you socials and anything else you guys want to other human beings um, to know about right now? <laughs> I'm at the Rob Bradford.com on Instagram. That's the only thing I really participate on. Um, at I the Rob Bradford.com. Yeah, I think you have some extra. Did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you combined your website and your Instagram title. Oh, geez. Which, which, is like, which is not bad marketing. I was really but I don't intrigued. Think, I don't yeah. Like, <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. What a how? At the Rob Bradford.com is actually my mailing address. <laughs> um, yeah, at the Rob Bradford Instagram. That's where I am. Uh, and I'm at Patrick James Lynch on Instagram, at PJ Lynch on Twitter, or PatrickJamesLynch.com. 
Awesome. Thank you, dudes. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for the interest in the film. That is a wrap on episode six of the Filmmaking the Hard Way podcast. Thank you to Patrick and Rob for sitting down and taking the time to talk with me about the film. And particularly to Rob for traversing all the way from central LA to the beach where Patrick and I live. And if you want to follow the pod, you can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Podbean, anywhere else you listen to pods probably. And if you uh, like this pod at all, <laughs> but please do leave a, uh, a positive uh, rating slash review on whichever of those platforms you listen to it on. That helps people find this thing a great deal. If you want to follow me, you can do so on Twitter at Josh Folan, on Instagram at MyShiftKeyIsBroke. And you can find my production company website at nyehentertainment.com. Till next time.